When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Study Smarter series is made possible with the help of Osmosis, the personalized learning platform that manages med school for you. It's been called the Netflix of medical education and is the only system that analyzes your coursework and intelligently recommends personalized quizzes, mnemonics, videos, reference articles, and of course, multiple choice practice questions. You can learn more about Osmosis by staying tuned to this episode and throughout the Study Smarter series as we dissect questions from their platform, get access to a lot of their free open access medical education by going to osmosis.org and signing up for a free trial of the premium Osmosis Prime. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, in this episode, we are talking with Emily Tan from whitecoatcoaching.com. They have a newly launched podcast, the White Coat Coaching Orthopedic Podcast. Check it out on the iTunes store. Today we are discussing anatomy, and because we spent so much time on high-yield topics in anatomy, we're splitting this into two episodes. So check back on Monday for part two of our anatomy discussion, and in the meantime, Elizabeth will be posting a mini-episode on microbiology. And if you like what we're doing with the show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes. If you think we're five-star content, I sure would appreciate if you would take the time to give us five stars on the podcast app or however you're listening. It would do a lot to help us get the word out about what we're trying to do to help you study smarter, not harder. Thanks as always. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. Uh, We have Emily Tan from White Coat Coaching here. How would you best present your platform to students? So WICO coaching was made basically for students who are interested in pursuing orthopedics. We've got a website with a blog where we talk about tips and tricks on the application process to get from medical student to orthopedic resident. We're also working on an Instagram account for x-ray reading examples. And our most recent projects are two things. One, we're starting a podcast of our own where we talk to residents and attendings to discuss the different nuances of life as a medical student, life as a resident, and then life eventually as an attending orthopedic surgeon. And our newest endeavor is an ortho jumpstart course. Orthopedic surgery, orthopedics in general are not 
one of the more heavily taught subjects in medical school. And so we find that a lot of students who come to do away rotations with us lack kind of a scaffold on which to add a lot of this information. And the reality of our medical system is that you are learning from a lot of tired residents and To get the best out of your rotation, it's good to come in with a basic amount of information that you can then put all the little um, extras about orthopedics on. And so that's what our Ortho Jumpstart course is hoping to do. Not to teach you everything you need to know about orthopedics, but just to give you a little introduction so that when you get to your away rotations, you can ask the right questions, you have a basic idea of where things fall, and then you can participate and learn a lot more during your away rotations. Awesome. So that'll come out, what, around June? We're going to launch June 5th. All right. So look for an episode towards the end of May, early June, where we'll go into that a little bit more with Emily. Today, Emily has agreed to help us with our Step 1 Study Smarter series, and specifically today, anatomy. Because most of your step one related anatomy questions are honestly going to be bones, muscles, nerves, tendons, the things that you're poking at and dealing with all day long, right? Yes, You're the perfect person. Thanks for your time. Let's do a little warm up question. So a 45 year old male presents to the clinic complaining of painful medial rotation of the upper extremity. There is no history of trauma to the shoulder, but point tenderness is present along the anterior portion of the humerus. Which muscle is most likely implicated? A, subscapularis, B, supraspinatus, C, infraspinatus, or D, teres minor? I I have no idea. I'm an OBGYN. I don't have to worry about these things anymore. What is the answer here? The answer here is subscapularis. This question stem doesn't give us a lot, but if you think about the anatomy of the rotator cuff, there is one clue in here that should point you to this answer. So medial or internal rotation of your shoulder is primarily controlled by one muscle, your subscapularis. The other muscles listed here are all part of your rotator cuff, but they do the opposite. So your supraspinatus is more in the abduction of your arm, and the last two here, the infraspinatus and the teres minor, do the external rotation part of your shoulder. So if they were to come into your office here, you would ask them to do what we call a belly press test or a a back lift off test. So for the belly press, it is exactly what it sounds like. You have the patient put their hand on their belly and press on their belly. And that is basically internal rotation against resistance. And classically, that would cause pain because you have a problem with your subscapularis. And this muscle inserts on the anterior portion of your scapula and kind of scoops around your humerus and attaches to the anterior part of your humerus. So you can imagine then that if it were to shorten, it will pull on the anterior part of your humerus and cause this internal rotation. So any sort of internal rotation against resistance, be it pushing on your belly or putting your hand behind your back and trying to lift it off. All these things will cause pain. All right. That was just a warm up. So we got a few more here. 
And this is sort of a shared ortho OB question. I thought this would be perfect. A 35 year old <laughs> G2P1 presents at 40 weeks gestation in labor. Her past medical history is significant for diabetes, for which she is on insulin, and her pregnancy has been otherwise unremarkable. Baby boy is born via spontaneous vaginal delivery. Physical exam shows his weight at 4,500 grams. His left arm is pronated and medially rotated, and he is unable to move it away from his body. The infant's right arm functions normally, and he is able to move his wrist in all 10 digits. Which of the following nerve roots were most likely injured during the delivery? A, C4 and C5. B, C5 and C6. C, C6 and C7. D, C7 and C8. Or E, C8 and T1. And the answer for this is nerve roots C5 and C6 because this patient has Herb Duchenne palsy, mm -hmm. right? C5, C6 nerve roots. So what are we looking at with kids who have an Herb Duchenne palsy? So the story is classic for a big baby. And if you think about the classic picture. You probably know a lot more about what these babies look like when they're coming out, but the classic picture <laughs> is that their head is coming out and their neck gets side bent a lot while their arm is being pulled back. Um, so you can imagine then that on the brachial plexus, you're going to be stretching the more superior aspect of it, which would be your C5 and C6. And just for... The uh, OBGYNs in the audience remind me of the nerve roots involved in the brachial plexus. Okay, so the brachial plexus consists of C5 through T1. So the top of the brachial plexus, or anatomically, most superior nerve roots are obviously C5 and, and C6 when it comes to the brachial plexus. And I mean, you were right with um, kind of a description of what these kids look like when they're, they come out. Um, one of the risk factors, and you don't have to have this in order to get an Herb Duchenne palsy, um, but on the boards and in real life, a shoulder dystocia um, can help you think of why this happens and can clue you into a diagnosis of this on an exam because with a shoulder dystocia, you get impaction, of the anterior shoulder against the pubic bone of the mom, and there's still uterine contractile activity behind baby trying to push baby out, and usually an assistant, an OB, is trying to help baby deliver because if they're stuck, obviously that is not a good situation for the oxygen levels in their brain if they uh, aren't delivered except yeah. for their head. So you get stretch or traction injuries, C5 and C6, uh, leading to an Herb Duchenne palsy, which is characterized by... So you've got the arm will be adducted, internally rotated, and then pronated and extended at the elbow. So if you break it up even further... Yeah, let's break that down. Like, why is it adducted? C5 comprises of your axillary nerve, your suprascapular nerve, and then your musculocutaneous nerve. So the axillary nerve uh, innervates your deltoid and your teres minor. And if you um, think about your first couple degrees of abduction, that is your deltoid. And then your suprascapular nerve will 
be innervating your supraspinatus and your infraspinatus, and those all have to do with abduction and internal rotation of the shoulder. And then if you look at your musculocutaneous nerve, you're talking about your biceps, which does elbow flexion. Then your C6, you're talking about your radial nerve deficiency, and that is most importantly for your brachioradialis and your supinator, which does more elbow flexion as well as supination of your forearm. So if you were to knock all of those things out, you would end up with an adducted, internally rotated at the shoulder, and then the forearm will be pronated and you'll have an extended elbow. So answer choice A was C4 and C5. How do, how do I rule that out if I'm presented with a vignette like so this? So C4 is not part of the brachial plexus. And the reason why brachial plexus is important here is that it goes and it wraps around your humerus down your arm. So if you were to push down on your shoulder, you wouldn't be applying traction on C4. Also, the symptoms... C3, C4, C5 keeps the diaphragm alive? Yes. So you would have a lot more problems if you had a C4 traction than just your arm not moving. All right. What about C6, C7? What do I need to know about those nerve roots? All right. So C7, you start to include your wrist flexors and finger extensors. Um, So a person with C7 injury would not have the normal wiggling of the 10 digits that the question stem has. Okay, so that rules that out. Wow, anatomy is easy. All right, what about C7 and C8? C7 and C8, you're starting to get a little lower down, and this is more rare from the mechanism of injury. So you would have injury to your ulnar and median nerves, which would lead to problems with using your hands. What about C8T1? C8T1 is Klumpke's palsy. So this would lead to a deficit of basically all the small muscles of the hand. So you'll have taken out your ulnar and your median nerves, which does um, all the intrinsic activities of your hand. And so this will lead to the claw hand. So your wrist will be held in extension, and that's because you won't have anything to flex your wrist. So all the muscles that flex your wrist will be knocked out, and you'll only have wrist extension. You'll also have hyperextension of your metacarpal phalangeal joints for kind of the same reasons. Your hand intrinsics will be knocked out, and so your MCPs will be tight because of the extensors. And then same thing with your IP joints, they will be flexed. So if you take your wrist and kind of just do a flop forward and then a flop back, you can tell that as your wrist goes back, your fingers start to flex, and that's just the the tightness there. And that's what you would have. Okay, cool. So when it comes to nerve roots and step one, any other like high yield facts or things you would want to mention? I don't know if this is high yield or not, but the herbs palsy is um, the most common obstetric brachial plexopathy. So if you were to get a question with a baby, a large baby coming out, that is probably your best bet. All right. Um, even if you don't memorize all of these nerves of the brachial plexus, most common obstetric brachial plexopathy is this herbs palsy. Okay, got it. A 25-year-old male presents to the office with complaints of right knee pain and an inability to walk. The patient was playing basketball. Oh, sorry. I'm terrible at sports. The patient was playing baseball. <laughs> when he suddenly heard a popping noise in his knee after sliding into third base. 
Physical examination is negative for joint line tenderness. Observation reveals posterior sag of the tibial tubercles. Consequent testing with the quadriceps activation test reveals anterior tibial displacement on the femur when the quadriceps contract with knee flexed at 90 degrees. Which of the following structures is most likely damaged? A, anterior cruciate ligament. B, medial collateral ligament. C, medial meniscus. D, patellar tendon. Or E, posterior cruciate ligament. And the answer is, Emily, I'm this one, you're on your own. I don't have much to offer here at all. So the posterior sag, that is your answer, basically. So the PCL is ruptured, causing your posterior sag. Okay. It, it's kind of graphic, but basically the posterior sag test is you take the leg from the ankle and you straighten it out and you lift it. If the knee goes with the toes up and if the knee bends towards the ground. That's posterior sag. That's your posterior sag. It means you don't have an intact posterior cruciate ligament. Correct. So you've got your two cruciate ligaments, your anterior cruciate ligament and your posterior cruciate ligament. And so the posterior cruciate ligament goes from the medial femoral condyle towards the back of the knee, and it attaches at the posterior aspect of your tibia. And this basically prevents posterior translation of your tibia. So if you were to think about the SAG test, if you lifted up the leg and the knee, if your PCL was intact, as the tibia went to sink with gravity, your PCL would prevent it from doing that. However, if you rupture it, that's what would cause that. The other test that they mention in this question is the activation of your quadriceps. If you think about where your quadriceps attach to your tibia, they go through your quadriceps tension to your patella and then through your patella tendon to the tibial tubercle, which is on the front of your tibia. If you're to activate your quadriceps, you're basically pulling on that extensor mechanism uh, and causing your tibia to move that way. Okay. Now, it can be kind of tricky because you would think, why would the tibia move anteriorly? Isn't that more the ACL? But the problem is with your PCL, if it's ruptured, your tibia will automatically sit posterior. And so what you're seeing with the activation is it going from the new pathologically posterior tibia being pulled anterior back to its normal place. And so even though it looks like it's moving forward, it's actually just moving from the pathologically posterior aspect where it was sitting after you ruptured the PCL to its normal position. So that's actually kind of a tricky part of this question. Yeah, that does make sense, though. But I could see how that could be kind of a distracting element within the the vignette. So I think based on what you said, this is pretty clear that this is a PCL injury. But choice A was anterior cruciate ligament. Like what? how does that present on the board's so the classic um, mechanism of injury for an ACL is a non-contact twisting injury. I assume these these <laughs> sorts of things happen in sports. Like I'm trying to pivot like when I'm... Yep, exactly. So for example, female soccer players are a classic patient. So they do a lot of cutting, which means rapidly changing direction with a lot of force. ACL tears are also much more common in females, and so that's why they're most often the classic 
patience for that. But it would be non-contact, meaning that they were running on their own. It's not like someone ran into their knee. Ooh, actually, this is a good... Going back to the PCL, another common mechanism of injury for PCL injuries is a dashboard injury. So if you have someone in a car crash, their knee is bent at 90 degrees and their tibia hits the dashboard, causing a posterior translation of that tibia with a femur that's attached, uh, that doesn't move, that can rip the uh, PCL. Okay. So yeah, that 90 degree flexion of the knee is a vulnerable position for the PCL. Going back to the ACL, so non-contact meaning they weren't tackled and landed on. It's more that they were changing direction quickly, their foot pivoted and they felt a pop. You'll also hear that their knee swelled. So usually with ACL injuries, you'll have a large hemarthrosis. So they will have a hear a pop, they will have immediate pain, and their knee will swell up a lot. All this talk makes me want to go to the gym and do leg extensions. <laughs> Well, landing mechanisms, there's a lot of preventative training that you can do uh, to prevent ACL tears. It's pretty important because an ACL tear is a, a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like any, <laughs> any one of these sounds like it hurts. Which is one of the other distractors in the question, the medial joint line pain. Actually, one more thing about ACLs. We had talked about the tests for the PCL. So the tests for the ACL, they will have a positive anterior drawer test and a Lachman's test. So basically the PCL was to prevent the posterior translation of the tibia. Think about putting your hand on someone's tibia and pushing back or the posterior drawer test. So the ACL does the opposite. And so the ACL you would test with an anterior drawer test. The Lachman also does tests anterior translation. So the anterior drawer test, you think about flexing the patient's knee up to 90. Say they're laying supine on the table. Usually what I do is I'll flex their knee up to 90 and then sit on their foot so that that foot is planted. And then I'll put my hands around the tibia and just kind of pull towards me. And that, if you feel no endpoint, it's very soft and it just keeps going. That is a clear positive anterior drawer test. Is that painful? It depends. So if they just injured it, they probably won't let you touch it. <laughs> It'll be really hard, and this is actually a, a good point because this depends a lot on how much they can relax. Mm. There's a lot of other muscles. If they tense up, it's very difficult to feel if they have a positive test or not. If it just happened a couple of days ago, it's really hard for a patient to relax. Yeah. Um, however, you can have chronic ACL tears or people that just are able to, you know, find their happy place and relax for you. And then that's when you can feel this big shift in the anterior drawer. And then Lachman? Test kind of the same thing, but instead of being flexed all the way up to 90 degrees, you're only flexing to about 30 degrees um, in the knee. And then you are kind of putting one hand on the femur to stabilize it and then using the other hand to try to translate the tibia forward. They found that this test is actually a little more sensitive. What about the medial collateral ligament, which was choice B? So the medial collateral ligament is another ligament um, in the knee. It's not in the middle, it's more on the side. So a patient who has a medial collateral ligament injury, you would think about a mechanism that would stretch that inside of your knee. Say you were playing a sport and someone hit the outside of your leg, um, causing your knees to go towards each other. Or if you had one leg planted and someone landed on your leg, causing your knee to go into a valgus 
force. So if you were the third baseman in this question, and the question were about the third baseman who was standing Yeah, and there someone and slid, slid into, into the base and hit you. That would be more consistent with medial collateral ligament injury. Mm-hmm. And they would present to your office with a lot of pain on the medial side. That makes sense. But there's a terrible triad they talk about, MCL, ACL, and medial meniscus injury. Not all of these injuries happen in exactly one plane. And so oftentimes you'll have one injury, maybe something gives, and then you have more injuries. So for example, if your ACL were to rupture, your tibia is going to rotate and move in such a way that is not natural for your medial meniscus. It'll probably get, actually the most common meniscus to be injured in an ACL is your lateral meniscus, just because your tibia rotates and your meniscus often gets pinched or caught and then torn. And how do you diagnose an MCL tear? So an MCL tear, you can actually grade it. So first of all, you would always do your H&P, your (laughs) history and exam. The history, if it's consistent with that, you know to keep going. But on your exam, you would have a lot of tenderness on that medial side of the knee. Then you would want to stress it. So when you come into an orthopedic surgery surgeon's office, you tell us that something hurts and we immediately go and try to push it so that it hurts more. So forgive us, but that's just what we have to do. Um, so if someone says that their medial the medial side of their knee hurts really bad. We try to find the ways that make it hurt. So you want to see if this MCL is just a sprain or if it's actually torn. And part of that is just applying a valgus stress on the knee and seeing if it opens up or if it's just painful. So you said the lateral meniscus is the most common meniscus injured in an ACL tear, most common concomitant meniscal injury, I suppose. But what about the medial meniscus? What's important for that? So the um, the caveat to that is that in a chronic ACL tear, you are more likely to have medial meniscus tears. It's a good segue. Yes. So now, is it true that like joint line tenderness is a big thing in a medial meniscus tear? Because I kind of maybe remember that from med school. Yeah. In our question stem, there's negative joint line tenderness, which is hard to imagine that his knee wouldn't hurt there. But what they're trying to tell you with this sentence is that um, joint line tenderness is one of the tests that we do for meniscal pathology. Your meniscus lives at your joint line, right? It's between your femur and your tibia. If you have a tear in that meniscus, generally, if you push on it, it would be painful. So if a vignette says there's no joint line tenderness, I can be pretty sure they don't have a meniscal tear. I think for the purposes of step one, yes. What is McMurray's sign? Is that important to know for the boards? or McMurray's sign is basically your other test for meniscal injury. There are many, many, but one of the most famous is McMurray's. And essentially, you're trying to pinch that torn meniscus between the femur and the tibia. And so you're applying forces to try to get it stuck. So you're going to flex the knee, you're going to apply varus force, depending on which side you're trying to catch, varus or valgus force, uh, and then you're going to extend, externally rotate and extend. And valgus is just knees towards each other, varus knees away from each other? Yep. Knees away from each other. So in practice, your McMurray's will be a combination of all of these things because you're trying to catch the meniscus 
the torn piece of meniscus, which would cause pain. Okay. But yeah, a combination of flexed varus valgus force, and then you're going to externally rotate and extend. Awesome. Well, not awesome. That sounds terrible. But okay, what about what about a? Pat- <laughs> That's another example of if you tell us yeah. that it hurts, we're going to try to make it worse. <laughs> we always do that, though. That's just a doctor thing. <laughs> it, at least inflict some pain before we offer the the treatment to make it the better. solution. Yeah. Uh, all right. What about a patellar tendon rupture? What's that look like clinically? Uh, patellar tendon rupture, we talked a little bit about the extensor mechanism of your knee. You've got your patellar, your tibial tubercle connected to your patellar tendon, connected to your patella, connected to your quad tendon, and then connected to your quad. So this entire extensor mechanism needs to be intact in order for you to straighten out your knee. Patellar tendon ruptures typically occur in younger patients. So If you had an extensor mechanism problem in an older patient, you would want to think more of quad tendon rupture. But say in a younger athlete, you would think more of patellar tendon. Most of these happen when your knee is flexed and basically you rip your uh, patellar tendon off. Uh, And you can imagine that since it's connected to your patella, you would feel the patella is higher than it should be. So it gets displaced up towards the femur? Yes, Yep. Is that noticeable just uh, on inspection? It depends on how swollen they are. So that's a pretty violent mm. injury. And so their whole knee would be pretty swollen. But you could probably see that the patella is uh, a little high. You would definitely see it on x-ray. So if you get a lateral of the knee, you would see that the patella is just riding high. Or the fancy word is patella alta. Um, it's just higher than it normally would be. All right. Um, And then, of course, you would try to get them to hold their leg in an extended position. Uh, And if they couldn't, that would definitely be indications uh, to get that fixed. All right, let's move away from the lower extremity and move back to the upper extremity, which we will cover in part two of our anatomy episode for the Step 1 Study Smarter series. Thanks to James from 2 O'Clock Courage for giving us permission to use the song The Valentine Blast Furnace off 2016's album Missalette. Check out 2oClockCourage.com or listen to them on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks to Stuart Bryant, our producer, and to every one of you who takes the time to listen to this happy study. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of Inside the Boards, or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.